Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to a time of worship at Fort Street Presbyterian Church. We are glad to have you. We wanted to begin today with a moment of seriousness and reflection and to share some statements about events of the past week. The Supreme Court's decision this past Friday has been called a Christian victory by many. And public rhetoric unites the overturning of Roe with Christianity. And I think we need to address that publicly because if we don't say anything, we allow the public perception of Christian ethics to have the last word. Did you know that the Presbyterian Church as a denomination, the PCUSA, our denomination, has prayed and thought and talked and debated long and hard about the issue of abortion, abortion for decades? In fact, General Assembly, the national governing body of the PCUSA, has adopted policies and given statements even before the Roe v. Wade decision was made. In 1970, and then further clarified in 1972, General Assembly of the PCUSA declared women should have full freedom of personal choice concerning the completion or termination of pregnancies and therefore should not be restricted by law. In 2006, the 217th General Assembly addressed the issue again and said, in the Reformed tradition, we affirm that God is the only Lord of conscience not the state, not even the church. As a community, the church challenges the faithful to exercise their moral agency responsibly. We have been taught that life and choice are opposites, but that is a false dichotomy that forces us into black and white thinking and leaves little room for the complex realities of reproductive health care and real life. Yes, as Christians, we are called to value life, all kinds of life. We're called to value the lives of immigrants, the poor, prisoners, widows, the hungry, orphans, the children here, the children to be, and the birthing people who may or may not carry them. We can value life and offer support and advocate for care while still respecting autonomy and choice and the moral agency of individuals. Jesus never spoke about abortion directly, but Jesus spoke about and to women. Jesus trusted women to give testimony related to bodies and to life. That's the story of the resurrection. And in a time when women were considered property and were unable to have any kind of autonomy, Jesus engaged them as whole people who were to be trusted. This feels like a Christian perspective to me. Even I, as a cisgender, straight, white woman with a supportive partner, great health care, a wonderful job, financial means, and the desire to have a child, even with all of those layers of mostly undeserved privilege and advantage, pregnancy, birth, the postpartum period, and motherhood were and are incredibly difficult. I had to navigate a HIPAA privacy violation, travel hours for medical care when dozens of practices denied me because I moved between states while pregnant. I had to learn to navigate extraordinarily difficult physical and mental changes, advocate for myself in hostile-feeling medical arenas, make difficult career decisions, and stretch my family's finances. 
If our society makes it difficult even for people who have all the tools and advantages to get through pregnancy, birthing, and parenthood, I wonder what advantages there will be for forcing people to do it without the same desire and support. Negative effects will ripple from mother to child to foster or adoptive parent to society. Loud voices tell us that abortion tears away at the moral fabric of society and that it's done casually and excitedly by people who just use it as a form of birth control as they live promiscuous, morally corrupt lives. But I can tell you that's a false image. I've walked with friends, with congregants, with acquaintances, with students as they have wrestled with incredibly complex situations related to pregnancy. Abuse, rape, infertility, miscarriage, poverty, shame, and the deeply personal decisions around issues of reproductive health care are not entered into haphazardly. Having extra layers of oversight and dictation from primarily older white men with power feels very hurtful to people like me. I want to say out loud that you can support the sanctity of life and still believe that women and people who can get pregnant should not have decisions made for them. You can be Christian and pro-choice. Many of us never heard that growing up. You can have your own opinions about abortion and still be loved by God and find belonging here. And you can talk to me about any of this. Some of you will be wondering if you can see these words, and you can. There's a bunch of copies on the table as you exit if you'd like to grab one on your way out. This is to the man who said, sad, to a pro-choice lament posted on Facebook. I agree. It is sad. It's so sad that God's people would rely on the American government to legislate morality on their behalf. And it's sadder that we reduce this complex, nuanced issue down to a trope, stop killing babies. We all know it's about ultimate freedom. Who's in charge of our bodies, God or government? It's sadder still that we cry for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of gun ownership, perfect freedom. And we're often the same people willing to strip individuals of their choice, their rights, and their freedoms in the name of an idle and false evangelical God that we claim address this issue so clearly in the Bible when we know every single page remains silent. But the worst of it, and I'd love to know what you all think the worst of this is, the worst of it is that we give more dignity, honor, and respect to unborn children in service of our own self-righteousness and our own hope for a Christian utopia. We give more to them than to the children that live and move and have their being on this earth right here and right now. So I hate that you're right. I hate that it's sad, that it's so sad, that it's like we've imagined a Jesus who didn't really mean anything he actually said.
a Jesus who didn't do the things he actually did, a Jesus who was not actually who he was, a Jesus who was just a figment of some ancient imagination. It's like we've forgotten the true story of an impoverished, marginalized Jewish man living under Roman occupation at a time when the Roman Empire was obsessed with conquering and eliminating the sovereignty, rights, and freedoms of anyone who did not look, talk, think, and act like them so that they could attain their ultimate goal of controlling everything. It's so sad that we've forgotten all that all the abuses of power stemming from governments. But while I agree that it is sad to see Christians supporting all of this, what's worse is that we almost forget about the women involved. We only see the unborn in ourselves, don't we? We never mention them, and we never include them in the discussion. And now, now it feels like we almost don't even have time to lament because we live under a similar empire with what appear to be similar motivations. And now we've been forced to look ahead and ask, oh my God, what's next? Amen. I invite you to take a breath and to hold space, and then to join me as we begin our call to worship. Our scripture today comes to us from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Listen now for a word from God. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, 
here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way, rejoicing. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for today. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for time set aside to meditate on its wisdom. Lord, I pray whatever words we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to share a story with you, and I, I want you to know that it, it could seem like I'm complaining when I share the story. I promise you I'm not. I'm laughing about this with all of you. I think it's funny. I'm over it in the moment. I was a little bit terrified, but I'm still here, and I've learned some things. It was Ash Wednesday last year. I was sitting in the parking lot of our church, and we were offering drive-by ashes for those that maybe felt uncomfortable coming into a building. And we thought, you know, this would probably be a great, great success, right? Because <laughs> it's a pandemic, and it's Ash Wednesday, and we want to continue that ritual. Well, we only had w one person show up. <laughs> and if that one person is, is watching um, right now, thank you for showing up. <laughs> but wh what ended up happening was I ended up putting on what amounted to a hazmat suit <laughs> and standing out in this, like, terribly cold parking lot <laughs> for about two hours waiting to impose ashes on people. And while I was out there, um, at one point, this was near the end, I was cold and shivery and thinking about going in early. At one point, this guy, he, he came around the edge of the parking lot. So we've got this alley behind us between us and Tommy's bar. And he came out of the alley and he turned the corner. And he was making his way toward Fort Street through this parking lot. And when he, got, when he got to the edge of the parking lot, just off of the alley, he actually stopped. And I said, I said, hey, hello. And he looked at me. He didn't say anything. But he pulled out a pack of cigarettes out of his back pocket, and he kind of hit one, popped it out, lit it, took a drag, and it was like he was blowing clouds out of his mouth, right, because it was so cold. And then he started walking toward me. And I looked at him again, and I said, hello, <laughs> how are you, in my best friendly pastor voice. And he still didn't say anything. He just took a drag off of his cigarette, and he kept walking toward me. And so finally, he gets, I mean, right up on me. And th this is a really, really tall guy, right? He's right on top of me, and he's looking down on me. And I'm looking up at him <laughs> in my hazmat suit. <laughs> with my pile of ashes here. <laughs> and I said, hello, what's your name? <laughs> and he looks down at me. He takes a drag off of his cigarette, and he blows it in my face. And then he says, who's asking? At that point, I wanted to say, nobody, I got to go home anyway. I'm out of here. <laughs> but I looked at him, 
I backed up a little bit. I didn't really hold my ground. But I looked at him. I said, my name's Pastor Garrett. <laughs> I'm one of the pastors here. And it's Ash Wednesday. And I'm just wondering if you want to receive ashes on your forehead. I mean, this guy looked like he had seen a ghost, you know. <laughs> he starts backing up, and he drops his cigarette, and he stamps it out. And he's like, oh, my gosh, Pastor, Pastor, I'm so, so sorry. I didn't, I didn't know, and, you know, living in the streets sometimes, I just, I have to be careful, Pastor. I have to be careful. You don't know what it's like out here. And I said, it's all right. And you're right, I I don't know what it's like. I appreciate you coming up to me. Do you want to receive some ashes? And he goes, what's that? And I explained it to him, and he goes, no, nah, I got time for that. I got to go. <laughs> and he walked off. And I share that story to tell you that sometimes, sometimes we see people for who we think they are, right? Sometimes we imagine who people are. Sometimes we see people for who we think they might be, not for who they really are. Sometimes we don't take a close enough look. I want to share another story with you and give another disclaimer. I'm going to reveal something ab about myself in the story, and, and I want you to know it can, it can maybe feel deeply, deeply personal. I, I want you to know I've, I feel like I've really healed from this, and, and I hope always that I'm preaching not from my open wounds and bleeding all over you all, but, but that actually I'm preaching from scars that have healed over. And maybe they're not perfectly healed, but I, I just hope you know this is not a first-time confession. Every Thursday when I was in seminary, I went to um, a bar because they had a great happy hour and I could get a relatively cheap meal and kind of unwind from the week. And I had a friend there named Tom who worked at the bar and uh, he was actually in seminary with me and we met because we had a couple of classes together and he's a really, really great guy, someone you can really talk to, someone that listens well, someone that was just deeply, deeply interesting. And Tom and I would always, always talk, but there was one particular night that uh, he, he got off work early, and Tom came to sit at the bar with me, and we had a little bit more time to talk than we normally did, and so, you know, because he worked there, we ended up getting a couple free drinks, and, and we, we were loosening up a little bit. Now, I, I wasn't getting crazy. Maybe we had two or three, but after, you know, maybe the third one, he looked at me, and he said, you know, Garrett, I don't really know anything about you before seminary. Can you, how'd you get here? What? What's your story? And so I began to tell him, you know, about where I grew up, the church I grew up in, all of this. And then I got to the point of what happened right before seminary, and I confessed something to him that I had not confessed to anyone else. I looked at him and I said, you know, I, I was actually married before I showed up here. And I said, I went through a pretty nasty divorce, and I began to kind of fill in some details and talk about things and just really opened up my heart to him and shared with him that it had been hard and it had been painful and that actually I was feeling ashamed of it and it was, it was difficult to connect with people because I felt broken, felt like I didn't belong, 
I felt like I wasn't worthy of love. I felt like I had made a lot of mistakes. I felt like I didn't have any value. I didn't have any worth. I shared all this with him, and I pour my heart out, and we're crying, and there are hugs. And then he turns to me, and he looks at me, and he says, Garrett, thank you for coming out to me. And I kind of stopped and perked up and was like, hold on. How many drinks have I had? What did I say? <laughs> you know? And he goes, no, 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 no. You've just revealed yourself to me. And I want you to know that I see you. And I want you to know that you're okay. And I want you to know that God loves you. And I want you to know that you still have value. And I thank you for opening up. And I thank you for sharing. And then we hugged and we've been good friends ever since. <laughs> we all need a friend like Tom, don't we? Someone that sees us, even at our worst, even when we've maybe got these shameful things in our past. We need friends like Tom to affirm us and love us, don't we? We all need that. Shout out to uh, Marilyn Jackson, one of our volunteers and workers here, for bringing ice water on what feels like the hottest day of the year. In our story for today, we meet Philip. And I want to give you a little bit of background because we're kind of flopping right down in the middle of the book of Acts. Philip is one of the recently converted apostles to this new Jesus way this thing that's happening in Jerusalem. And Philip, like all of the other disciples, is excited and motivated and ready in preaching the gospel. And like all of the other disciples, he's been exiled out of Jerusalem by this guy named Saul, who will later change his name to Paul and then write the rest of the New Testament. But right now, Saul is persecuting all of the Christians. And in fact, Saul has just executed Stephen, the first martyr, by stoning. Stephen was also a deacon, you know, so all you deacons in the church, watch out, all right? Watch out. Stephen has been stoned, and there's, there's deeper persecution. They know they're going to come after more people than just those, and so a lot of them scatter, and they flee. And Peter gets word from the Holy Spirit while he's in prayer that he needs to go to this desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza, a place where there's really nothing at all. And so he goes and he waits. And I think it's so significant that the writer of the book of Acts tells us that this story is happening between cities. And I want you to pay attention to this because, you know, when you're in a city, you've got to follow rules, regulations. People tell you, you know, how high you can cut your grass and how low you can't. They tell you all sorts of things. There's all these things that happen in cities. But out beyond the city, people are just people. It's me and you, person to person. 
And that's where this story takes place, away from spiritual authority, away from government authority, away from anything but God. And so while Peter is waiting out there, he doesn't really know what the Spirit wants him to do, and Willie Jennings actually says that uh, Philip has uh, imprecise direction but perfect obedience. And Jennings goes on to say that that's exactly what God wants from us. God wants us to be a little bit lost and not know exactly where to go, but God wants our whole heart to be in it and ready to listen. And so Philip is just by this road, and while he's sitting there, pretty soon he hears the sounds of chariot wheels and the hooves of horses, and then he hears this really curious voice speaking. He doesn't quite know what the guy is saying, but as he listens closer and closer, and he kind of gets a view, he sees this guy that's coming to him is completely bald, he's kind of dressed in royal garbs, there's gold, and he's in this really really nice chariot. You know, in chariots at the time, like, I had a friend who joked that this is before the time of Henry Ford and the assembly line, so, you know, chariots didn't just come down and were assembled. You, you had to hand make these things, right? You had to fashion them. He's in this elaborate chariot, and he's going, and what, what Philip notices is that actually <laughs> he's standing up in this chariot, and the driver's driving away, and the guy is reading from a scroll, and this is really interesting. Not only is this guy rich, not only is he in this nice chariot, but he's reading for pleasure. So he's rich, he's powerful, he's intelligent, and he's from a different country. And as the chariot gets closer and closer and closer, Philip perks up because he recognizes the words of the scroll. They're coming from the prophet Isaiah. And now that it's closer and he can hear, he looks at this man and he can tell by some of the things that he's wearing, some of his mannerisms and things, he can tell he's a eunuch. And Philip would find this very, very interesting because Philip has a very good handle on the Old Testament and all of the scriptures. Philip would know, one, that in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and I, I think it's chapter 34, you don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere in Deuteronomy. There's a very explicit code in law that essentially says eunuchs are not allowed into the family of God. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but eunuchs are not allowed into the temple. They're not allowed to worship. They are not included. They're marginalized. They're separate. They have their own function and, and, and a small, small role in society, but they don't get all of the rights and the freedoms. They don't have the sovereignty that others do especially when it comes to their relationship with God. And Philip would find that interesting, that one, th this, this eunuch is reading, you know, the book of Isaiah, which he finds is actually connected to that verse in Deuteronomy. And as he, he listens more and more, he realizes the eunuch is, is reading this passage from Isaiah that actually wants to challenge that verse in Deuteronomy. So the prophet Isaiah comes along and, and says, you know, that law code that we have in Deuteronomy, it might be kind of outdated. It might be kind of harsh. It might need to be a little bit more inclusive. And so Isaiah actually writes this wonderful, beautiful poem to push back against that old way of thinking. And what Isaiah essentially says in more beautiful words than I can give you today is that eunuchs belong too. 
Eunuchs are a part of the family of God, too. Eunuchs have a place at the table. They are welcome here. And so Philip, as he's hearing this eunuch driving down the road, reading this passage from Isaiah, thinking about what the Old Testament says, he suddenly hears the Holy Spirit say, Philip, go catch up to him. And so Philip runs and catches up to the chariot. And I imagine he's kind of like running beside the chariot, right? <laughs> and and, and he's, he's looking up at the guy as he's going. And he says to him, the first thing that Philip says to the eunuch as he catches up to the chariot, he says, do you understand what you're reading? Which is a great way to open a conversation, <laughs> to assume ignorance. <laughs> do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch gives the most beautiful response, I think. I just love this. He says, he says, how can I? How can I if no one teaches me? And what a beautiful thing for someone that is rich, someone that is powerful, someone that is reading these scrolls for pleasure at a time when most people could not read. What an act of humility and grace to say, huh, what can I know if you don't tell me? And then the eunuch goes even further, and he invites Philip to share a seat in his chariot, and they go along, and Philip, it says, beginning with the scripture that, that the eunuch was reading, beginning with that passage in Isaiah, beginning there, where everyone is welcome, even the ones that were previously excluded, beginning in that place, he constructs a theology for the eunuch. And he tells the story of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that Jesus made. And he does all of this and he shares this good news with the eunuch. And the eunuch is listening to every single word. And then they go on for a little bit. And pretty soon, the, the eunuch sees kind of out of the corner of his eye, he says, look, there's water. What is preventing me from being baptized? We're told at the beginning of the story that the eunuch was in Jerusalem for worship but really he wouldn't have been allowed to worship. And I find it curious that the first thing out of the eunuch's mouth is, can I be baptized? Can I receive this? Because probably he wanted to receive that at the temple where a lot of other people did, and he wasn't allowed. And so in this moment, he is seizing his chance and his opportunity because he's just heard from Philip this wonderful good news that is different from anything else he's heard from religious people. And so he says to Philip, look, there's, there's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? And there are some versions, and you'll read in some versions, depending on what translation you have. There's an omitted verse in 37, and it says something to the effect of, Philip said to the eunuch after he asked if he could be baptized, if you believe, you may. 
And then the eunuch responds back in this omitted verse, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then they go down to the water. But I actually like it with the verse omitted because what the eunuch is seeing in the theology of Philip is that he doesn't need permission from religious authorities anymore. Those days are gone. What the Ethiopian eunuch needs is only to accept the free love of God that has been given in Jesus Christ and to own it, to internalize it, and to kind of seize it. And so after Philip doesn't respond, the eunuch says to the chariot driver, stop, and they both get out, and they both go down to the water, and it says that Philip baptizes the eunuch. And as soon, I don't know if you caught this, right at the end, as soon as the eunuch is coming up out of the water, poof, Philip is whisked away. And the eunuch is left there alone, and the eunuch is singing the praises of God. So you might be wondering, what is this? have to do with the sermon title, We All Need Queer Theology. You might be wondering, what is queer theology? And I don't have enough time up here. I mean, you, you don't want me to sit up here and, and try to explain it. One, I'm not the right person. Two, it would take us forever. But I will tell you, queer theology often begins with this story. The story of a eunuch who did not fit into neat categories in the ancient Near East. He didn't really know how to classify them uh, sexually, uh, often racially. Uh, they, they did not fit into neat categories. They were, in the words of a queer theologian, a kind of queer person in the ancient world. And they did not belong in religious spaces. Sometimes they would get maybe a little bit of power. I mean, this guy is allowed to run the treasury. He's allowed to have a function for the empire, but he's not allowed to be in the rest of the community. He's certainly not allowed to worship in the temples, and he certainly was not allowed to be baptized. But this is precisely where queer theology begins because this Ethiopian eunuch is the first Gentile convert to the new church. He's the first one to receive this new grace from the Holy Spirit. He's the first one to be welcomed into the family of God after the Holy Spirit has come down and entered into the hearts of all humankind. And Willie Jennings says that it is this kind of radical acceptance, this kind of radical grace upon which the church is founded. It is this kind of radical thinking <laughs> That actually gets the disciples in trouble a little bit later, but this is where we begin our theology with radical acceptance, love, and grace because we see the dignity and the humanity and the value in each and every person that God has made regardless of what categories society places on them regardless of the way we want to think about them, regardless of the assumptions we make about them, this is where we begin. They and all of us are beloved children of God. Period. Full stop. No exceptions. 
And we all need that, don't we? We all need that because we all have our own shames. We all maybe struggle with acceptance, not to the same degrees, I'm not saying that, but we all need that kind of radical love because we're not perfect. And we don't always know that we have that value. And so I would argue that we all need queer theology because it is upon this kind of thinking that the church is built, that this is all here for us today, this radical love and acceptance. And my challenge for you as you go is to be like my friend Tom, to be like the friends that you have that have welcomed you and loved you and encouraged you and given you companionship and welcomed you regardless of who you are in society's eyes. I would challenge you to go into the world and to spread that love, to spread that acceptance, because we all need it. We all need it. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for Philip. Thank you for the eunuch. God, thank you for love and acceptance. Thank you for creating us in your image. Lord, help us to receive that love and to give it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.